after eating my body weight in gelato, it is lovely to be back with you uh, after a little bit of a break. In 1674, a poet, a songwriter, a lyricist, a pastor and a theologian was born in the city of Southampton in the south of England. And while that was an awfully long time ago, I can guarantee you that this man's words have been on your lips. His name was Isaac Watts, and it was his insistence of capturing the riches of the Christian faith in the language of everyday people and imbuing it with extraordinary and passionate emotion that had him be called the father of English hymns. Isaac Watts was born to a non-conformist family. What that means is that his parents didn't conform to the legal requirements, to uh, the worship practices and the doctrines of the state, state church at that time, which of course was the Church of England. They were dissenters and they insisted on a separation between church and state and religious freedom. His father had such incredibly strong non-conformist convictions that he actually went to jail. As a young boy, Isaac Watts showed himself to be both extremely talented uh, and intelligent, particularly gifted in languages. He began learning Latin at the age of four. At the age of nine, he progressed to Greek. At the age of 11, it was French. And at the age of 13, it's Hebrew. He wrote poetry, he composed rhymes, and he was frankly bored stiff by what passed for worship and singing in the church of his day. He complained so much about it that his father said to him, well, Isaac, it's time to put up or shut up. If you think you can be, do better, you should do better. At the time, there was a very influential book that was written by a man called Strickland Goff, which is a fabulous name, I think. And it concluded that the present decay that the dissenting church was seeing at that time, there was this precipitous decline in the numbers of people who were attending the dissenting church needed to be addressed. And so he wrote a book, and after analysing all of the evidence and all of the facts, his conclusion was the thing that was what was driving the dissenting church downward in attendance was the nature of its worship. Its worship needed to change. And so as Isaac Watts was just approaching the end of his university studies, a pamphlet war broke out amongst the British Baptists. A pamphlet war is kind of like a social media, you know, kerfuffle, but on paper. Each of the various factions wrote up their arguments, criticised um, people who hold alternative views on paper, and then they distributed those pamphlets. The fight was over this question of the effectiveness of worship in the church, and there were three camps. The first camp thought that there should be absolutely no singing of any kind at any time in church. The second camp adopted kind of the status quo position. They thought that the only things that should be sung in church were the words of David in the Psalms and the words of Jesus. The progressive position, the radical position, was that the church should sing Christian songs inspired by the scriptures and the life of faith. That was the radical position. 
Now, at the time, singing in every single denomination in the land, including in the dissenting churches, was, um, was the singing of what was called metrical psalms. Metrical refers to a specific rhythm or a specific rhyme within um, the song that was imposed on the text. So the Psalms were effectively cut up into a bunch of verses and then they were force fit into a specific rhythm, a specific tune, a specific song. But there weren't actually a lot of these songs. And so you had lots of Psalms, 150, force fit into a very small number of tunes that were sung over and over again with different words. And they literally sang the Psalms in sequential order, Sunday after Sunday. As a teenager, Isaac Watts realised that this whole procedure of singing the Psalms like this was this extraordinary drab and meaningless ritual, hence the source of his complaint to his father. Well, after he complained to his dad and his dad said, do something about it, the very next week, Isaac Watts composed his first hymn and he presented it to the church. It was called, Behold the Glories of the Lamb. And surprisingly, they loved it and they kept on singing it. You see, in relation to this fight about worship, Isaac Watts took the progressive radical position. He believed that Christians shouldn't be forever just repeating the words of King David as if those words really spoke to the depth of their contemporary experience or reflected the reality of their faith in the moment. What we needed to do, what the church needed to do was to sing out of their everyday experience of what it meant to follow Jesus in that moment, in that place. What's wanted to put the fullness of the truth of the gospel into the mouths and on the lips of every believer so that they might relate to it and understand it and draw it deep within themselves. And he wanted these new words, this new way of singing to profoundly impact people's emotions. He wanted these songs to be passionate and, and full of life and full of the whole breadth of human emotion. He didn't want songs to be didactic expositions of theology. He wanted them to be the church's heartfelt response to God. And approaching his work in that radical way that only young people can do, he set out to write his very own book of the Psalms using this progressive approach with the intention that they would uh, become the hymns of the church. And in doing so, he made some incredibly radical changes. I mean, he completely ignored a whole bunch of, of psalms, just cut them out of his book. He also rearranged um, a whole bunch of other verses and he, he really challenged uh, this idea that no other person before him had ever attempted to do, which was to bring the psalms into the language and the meaning and the motion of the day to write the very words that he thought King David would write had he been living at the time of Isaac himself. And so he composed two very famous uh, books of hymns. They include hymns that you might know, like, O oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, 
Alas, did my saviour bleed? My shepherd will supply my need and what has been called the very greatest hymn potentially ever written in the English language when I survey the wondrous cross. I noticed that it appears on the Spotify list that we've put together as a church over the last couple of weeks. And there's nothing, I think, that illustrates Watts' approach to all of this than the well-known song, Joy to the World. Joy to the World was originally titled The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. And when it first appeared in Psalm's book, The Psalms of David Imitated, which he published in 1719, it was his interpretation of Psalm 98. This is Isaac Watts in action, applying his radical approach to the Psalms. So let's listen to this Psalm and think about those words that I know you know to joy to the world. Psalm 98 verse one. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He's remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing with trumpets and the blast of a ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he has come to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. What Watts is doing in Joy to the World is that he's taking up this theme of joy that we see in this psalm here, in Psalm 98, in praise of the coming Messiah. You see, Joy to the World was conceived by Watts as a celebration of the second and the final coming of Jesus Christ, which is ironic because we sing it as a Christmas carol, don't we? But actually, Joy to the World has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus and everything to do with his second coming. It's kind of like saying he is risen before we've even got to Easter Sunday, but that's what we're doing when we sing Joy to the World at Christmas time. I think it's hard for us uh, at this distance of, of history to fully appreciate just how radical and how incredibly controversial Watts' approach was. I mean, to us, it just kind of seems logical, I think. But whole denominations split because of their usage or their refusal to use Isaac Watts' hymnal. Thomas Burberry, a fierce critic, said of Watts that his work were, was whims, not hymns. Whims, not hymns. That's a fantastic put down. It's also, I think, hard to express just how influential Watts' approach was on singing in the English world in the 18th and the 19th centuries and beyond. And why was it so influential? Because people loved singing Watts' hymns. They loved it. They wanted to sing these hymns. It's like they were food for their souls, that they were seeking some freshness of heart, some, some injection of expression and feeling in the mode of worship that Isaac Watts' hymns provided. I don't think that it's a coincidence that just in the, the decade after Watts published his hymns, that the dissenting church in England 
went through a series of extraordinary revivals. I wonder, might there be a connection between the way that the church worships and the coming of the Spirit bringing revival amongst believers? Two major revivals occurred in this period. It's called, in historical terms, the First Great Awakening, which happened in the 1730s and the 1740s, and the Second Great Awakening, which spanned later in the 18th and the early 19th centuries. And Watts's hymns were the soundtrack to each of these revivals in the church. And these revivals impacted not just England, but also spread out to the colonies, particularly in America, inviting people to take up a more experiential, a more personal, a deeper connection to God and to their faith. There are so many resonances, I think, between this wonderful story of Isaac Watts and the story of the contemporary church. The, the story of our experience of worship. It reminds me that um, the writer of Ecclesiastes was absolutely right. There is nothing new underneath the sun. I think the church has been arguing about what it should sing during its worship services as the final note sounded of the very first song that the church ever sang. I know that I personally became aware of this thing called the worship wars in the 1990s. Perhaps you were around then a time when Jeff Bullock, who was the worship pastor of a place called Hills Christian Life Centre, started putting out radical new songs like The Heavens Shall Declare and Have Faith in God and Refresh My uh, Heart and You Rescued Me. If you don't know who Jeff Bullock is, perhaps you know one of his most famous songs, The Power of Your Love. Well, Jeff Bullock became lesser and Darlene Check became greater and Hills Christian Life Centre became Hillsong. And Hillsong begat, begat a model that was then followed internationally around the world, giving rise to a whole bunch of churches for whom singing was at the heart of their ministry. And the rest, they say, is history. Well, if you've ever stood next to me during worship and heard me sing, I think you'll be surprised to know that when I was a teenager, I used to stand in the front of my little local church and lead worship. I'd like to say that what I lacked in talent, I made up for in enthusiasm, but I'm really not sure that that was actually very true. In fact, I think that this period of my life mercifully lasted for not a lot of years, and that there was a manifestation of God's grace to that particular congregation. <laughs> But what I remember about this time was a particular conversation I had one Sunday after church with a deacon in a three-piece beige suit. <laughs> he explained to me that on Sunday morning, Katrina, we only sang hymns from the blue hymnal, and on Sunday evenings, we only sang songs from one of the three scripture in song booklets. Now, he emphatically explained that as a worship leader, the most important thing I needed to understand was this, that there was a difference between hymns, which were good, and choruses, which were tolerable, and Jesus is my boyfriend music, which was utterly intolerable of the likes that Jeff Bullock sang. Now, I can't imagine what this particular deacon would have made of our singing today. 
But it strikes me today that within the story of Isaac Watts, as it rings in my ears, that the church really seems to be having the same arguments about worship for an extraordinarily long time. We seem to be arguing continually about how much we should value the language of faith of the saints that have gone before us, and how much we should emphasise and translate our singing into the language of today. You might call it the Shakespeare problem. The words are beautiful, but they're kind of hard for us 21st century people to understand, but should we keep them because they're beautiful or should we not? And we seem also to keep arguing about whether or not the songs of the church should express deep theological truths, deep theological ideas about God, or whether or not the songs should move our hearts towards God. This is an argument that pits reason against emotion. And I'm sure that most of us here this morning, I think, would reject both of those things as some kind of false dichotomy. Like, do we really need to choose between those two things? Can't we value the imagery in my chains are gone in amazing grace, as well as the imagery of God being waymaker, promise keeper, miracle worker? Can't we do both? And can't our hearts be moved within us as we affirm the deep theological truths of the Christian faith? Shouldn't worship be an experience of wholeness, where our hearts and our minds, both deeply engaged, come together to worship our God? I've been reflecting this week on what the fruit of singing in church all of these years in my own life has been. And the best description that I can come up with this morning is that the experience of worship stretches me. It just stretches me. It stretches my mind because worship redefines my identity. In a world where I am told so many different stories about who I am and who I'm supposed to be and where I should get meaning and value in my life, worship redefines my identity and reminds me of who I truly am. I am a child of God. You are a child of God. Your life has been hidden in Christ. You are forgiven and set free. And worship repatterns my imagination. Inside of my head where I dream a whole bunch of dreams and hope for a whole bunch of things to change, worship invites me to consider a realm of truth that is deeper than my life and wider than I could possibly know. It invites me to see behind and beyond the surface of things to a reality that is rock solid and eternal to envision a future that, frankly, my mind could not come up with in and of its own accord. And worship stretches me emotionally because worship reorders my affections. In the hidden depths of my heart where my affections and emotions become attached to things I really think will satisfy me, where they become seduced by things and people that I hope will give me the things that I need, or where in my heart I become deeply wounded, worship reorders my affections because it reminds me to whom I am grateful. 
and it reconnects me with the wellspring of life at the feet of Jesus Christ, where the things that really matter, the things that really truly satisfy become crystal clear. And worship stretches my actions in the world because it sends me out into the world and says to me, Katrina, you must love your neighbour and pray for those who you consider to be your enemies and forgive just as you have been forgiven. You see, the truth is that I don't always enjoy worship because this stretching, this reorienting, actually sometimes it's uncomfortable and it's painful and I am resistant because when I come into the moment of worship in the depths of, let's just say, my grief, it is hard to raise my voice and sing of joy. But in that moment, that is in fact the thing that I most need. Worship, it keeps stretching me beyond how I come in to worship, beyond the things in my life that I think are important, beyond the world that I can see right before me. And I think that the teenager that was Isaac Watts understood this, that the worship of his day had become drab and formulaic and boring because it no longer stretched anyone in any direction. And he longed to bring the dynamic power of the Spirit into the life of the worship of the church. And this is a gift that reverberates even today down through the ages. And this is a gift that we have the opportunity to receive this morning. So as we land, I'd like to invite you to stand. Isaac Watts is here vicariously through that wonderful song that we enjoy so much at Christmas. Joy to the world. I don't know about you, but as I look around me this Christmas, there are so many things in the world that tell me that joy has no place. But there is a reality beyond what we can see. It is the depth of the joy that we will experience at that moment where all things will be made whole. And this is the moment that we enter into and sing about today. So come, those of you who are weary and brokenhearted. Come, those of you who are longing for hope in the midst of the challenges of life and set your eyes above to the joy that awaits in the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's sing.